Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we speak to a Vancouver CEO whose company specializes in reusable takeaway cups and containers, a creative way to try to bring an end to single-use items, but will it work? Author Tara McGuire joins me to discuss her new book, A Love Letter, to her son lost to an overdose called Hold After and Before. Chachi Curl of Angus Reid fills us in on a new poll, the first since Pierre Polyev became Conservative Party leader, that shows the Conservatives with a healthy 7% lead over Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. What's driving the surge in support? And can it be sustained? But first, we continue our coverage of the cleanup and recovery following post-tropical storm Fiona in Atlantic Canada. The Prime Minister was in BEI and in Cape Breton today. We speak with the Mayor of the Cape Breton Regional Municipality about what lies ahead. And we hear from the Insurance Bureau of Canada about the impact of these kinds of extreme storms on insurance rates. But let's begin again tonight in Atlantic Canada, where disaster relief and recovery efforts in regions pummeled by post-tropical storm Fiona over the weekend continue today. There are 400 Canadian Armed Forces personnel now in New Brunswick, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia and PEI to help local crews clear debris and down trees, rebuild electricity infrastructure, roads and bridges. More than 200,000 Atlantic Canadian homes and businesses are still without power as of this afternoon. The Prime Minister was in Atlantic Canada today to see firsthand and the destruction left behind by Hurricane Fiona. Trudeau says those affected by the storm will need support for some time to come. Good to be here in Cape Breton today. Uh, opportunity to meet with uh, uh, folks who have been really hard hit by Fiona. Um, we, uh, uh, we've seen both the resilience and the strength, but we've also seen some pretty serious devastation as, as people have come together, uh, lost roofs, uh, lost homes, uh, folks living in their garages. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the strength of Canadians coming together to be there for each other is evident in, uh, in everything we see. Um, Cape Bretoners, like all Canadians, know how to deal with, uh, uh, with weather and know how to pull together as a community during tough times, and that's certainly what we're seeing. Prime Minister Trudeau was in PEI first and then headed to Cape Breton where he was later today. And that's where we find Cape Breton Regional Municipality Mayor Amanda McDougall. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me again. Well, when we last spoke on Friday, Fiona was bearing down on Cape Breton. Uh, it's come and gone. We've seen the images. Uh, just from your perspective, how was that night? That is a night I will not soon forget. That's for sure. Um, you know, my husband and my kids were all in bed. Um, nobody was really sleeping. I mean, the children were. My husband and I weren't. I sat on the couch. I opened up my computer um, just to kind of scroll through social media, see what people are feeling follow the radars. Um, and in my living room, I have a really big picture window, but I also have patio doors on the other side. And the the sound of the wind hitting my house and moving the glass within the panes of the doors and the windows was overwhelming. It was, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, there were points that, you know, the house shook so hard, you couldn't help but think, oh my gosh, are we going to fly away? Is something going to get torn off? Like this is, this is really, really bad. And um, yeah, unfortunately that actually happened for a great many people. Yeah. You must've known, um, I guess at the time when we were talking earlier about just how bad it might be, I guess at that point you realized it was going to be bad, that, that there was going to be extensive damage as had been uh, predicted. But what was it when you got up on Saturday to, to survey or when Saturday afternoon, um, I guess in your situation, you really have to get right to work, right? 
Oh, listen, it, the work started as soon as the alerts came in earlier in the week, uh, Saturday morning. It, it really, it feels like an, an, a lifetime ago, which is so wild. Um, just starting to understand what was happening in every nook and cranny of our municipality. And, and I, I'll remind folks that we're a regional municipality. So in 1992, the CBRM amalgamated five former towns and, and communities. And so we have this huge geographic spread, really interesting and diverse communities, um, but also kind of unique in their own geography, population and what have you. So the damage really spanned the entire municipality, which we don't typically see. In storms, you'll see like, oh, there's a little bit here in Lewisburg and a little bit here in town. No, this was this was completely across the board. No one was spared. So where do you begin? I mean, the task must seem so monumental, but but where do you begin? I know you've coordinated with with both provincial and federal leadership, but where does one start to help when, when you're faced with that much devastation? Yeah, and, and that was the question. Um, it it was so hard to even wrap your head around. What do we do first? But it became very evident. Um, people lost their homes. People needed shelter. And that was the primary focus. Getting people out of situations of emergency and danger and into a place of safety was priority. Next, clearing uh, clearing roads. When I say trees were down, I- I'm talking like you could not get out of small subdivisions because trees were down. People were literally trapped and still are and still are. Um that being said, um, people got to work really, really fast. And I say people because it wasn't just public works. It wasn't just Department of Transportation. It wasn't, um, you know, it, it was neighbors helping each other, grabbing saws, chainsaws, using trucks, pulling out um, trees and debris, making sure access was, was, you know, gained again. So no one person did anything. An entire community came together to get our feet back under us. And now I feel like we have the army in place. Nova Scotia power is coordinating and mobilizing. EMO has comfort centers everywhere. Um, You know, power is starting to come back on slowly, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a while though. It's going to be a while before we get back to any sense of normal. I guess, yeah, you just needed to create some stability for everyone there, place to live, get the power back on, get the lights back on. Um, but you were mentioning this on Friday. You knew that the community would come together. It must be heartening to see it actually yeah. happen. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's that old folklore, I guess you could say, of the East Coast. Like, you'll always have a cup of tea and a sandwich wherever you go. That That is 100% true. Um, people are taking care of each other. And not just those from the East Coast. I'll tell you. Uh, I was heading into City Hall um, a couple of days ago, and uh, I saw in our north end of Sydney where a lot of our international students That's reside right. because That's a lot right. of apartments. The schools there, yeah, the schools, yeah, the, yeah. University, the University of Cape Breton, of course, yeah, yeah, Havelock Street down there, completely filled with students cooking in the street, taking care of one another, making tea, singing, music. It was. I don't know. It just, it just built my soul. I, I was so nervous about going into town and seeing all this horrible devastation and you find these pockets of beauty that just, oh, it just, it keeps you going. Yeah. Cause you, cause I, everyone needs to be kept going now. I can imagine there've been a lot of sleepless nights, not just for you, but for a lot of people in the community since we spoke on Friday. Absolutely. 
Um, so sorry. Hold on. Yeah, keep. You can keep going. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. I said. Imagine there have been a lot. <clears throat> I said it, it must be difficult. It must be great to see that because I can imagine that a lot of people now in the community. I mean, it's Tuesday. A lot of people are probably running on fumes by now, right? Well, in in a couple of senses. So yes, the exhaustion I'm sure is setting in. We have folks that have been working in our community from our own. Uh, from our own employee uh, employee group who have just not stopped. They literally have not stopped. Um, they just keep working and working water, uh, ditch clearing, road maintenance, setting up comfort centers, making sure that there's food and, and, and supplies. Um, our EMO team, I'm sure they haven't slept in four days. It's It's incredible. However, the other thing that is very concerning is that many people are still not um, not on the power grid again. And so relying on generators and there is a, a very severe lack of access to fuel right now. So people are very nervous. Um, we always say, you know, prepare for 72 hours. That's typically the window when we see uh, power restoration take place. We're, we're, we're beyond that now That's and right. people and people are running out. So the good, the good news is our um, our tank farm, uh, Imperial Oil, they are now back on the power grid and able to start delivering fuel to um, to service centers. The bad news is not many of our service centers are back with power yet, so it's very very challenging. Um, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Amanda McDougall is with us. She is the mayor of the Cape Breton Regional Municipality. We're talking about the devastation of post-tropical storm Fiona, the assessment of the damage, the cleanup, and where we go from here. So where do you, the next 72 hours, you talked about the first 72, that's sort of, you know, the immediate aftermath. What what lies ahead now for the next 72? Because I know there's a lot of work still to be done, but it doesn't get any easier, right? No. Um, Yeah, I guess you could say like, you pick up the big pieces now all, all the crumbs are there to find um you know uh, main arteries are now open partially in some instances and so the reason for that is because there are large trees that are mixed in with power lines that could potentially still have um electricity running through them it's very very dangerous we also have to assess um structurally what houses can be salvaged and what have to be what what ones have to be demolished that is painstaking um because these are people's homes right and Mm -hmm. they've just been through the trauma of the storm being displaced and now we'll soon find out um i guess the future of their homes the good news is the premier um premier tim houston was here um for a visit and very rapidly started up the de- disaster assist financial assistance program. I'm so sorry. I've been right. a little bit hairy in my head. I'm a little tired. Indeed. These days. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. Yes. Yes. Disaster assistance for sure. The, the, I saw that the premier was touring yesterday, yeah, mm-hmm. which is great, which is great. So that, that gives some peace of mind to people that, okay, let's get this application in and let's start this process of figuring out our future. And there's some financial backing to help them. Um, what happens next? It, we just keep digging. We keep cleaning. We keep coming together. We keep nurturing each other and caring for one another. And it's going to be a day-by-day process to make grandiose plans and say, hey, this is what's going to happen in this timeline, I, I think is just pie in the sky because you don't know what you're unearthing as we as we go through this process. 
What, what what have you been, what's worried you? Because I know that if you look at the, just the, sh- the sheer force of that storm, we look at sort of loss of life and it was probably, you know, the forecasting was good. So people were prepared. So it feels like it, you know, that somehow it could have been much worse at the same time. Rebuilding from that is is so tough because there's because eventually you know people's eyes turn away and then you're left with having to rebuild and that's and that's difficult once the adrenaline has ebbed away. Right, and I think it goes much deeper than the rebuilding process. This is going to have to seep deep, deep into our planning processes. Um, it, to me, there's no question that this is what's happening here the severity and frequency of storms and weather events in all seasons is directly related to climate change and global uh, warming. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I've seen this progress throughout my lifetime and now we have to be smarter about our planning. What kind of infrastructure are we going to be investing in? What type of um, mitigation projects are we going to be able to invest in? And again, I had the opportunity to speak with the prime minister and, and really, and really, clarify that we need help doing this. We don't know how to do this on our own. And so it's really important. And I value very much his continued support in that future planning, because, you know, I, I've, I've got kids and yeah. they have futures and we cannot keep being reactive to the changes in our climate. We have to actually put into action um, some sort of drastic changes so, so Amanda, if I hear you properly, it, it actually changed the way you see where you live. I think that happens a lot of times in storms that people don't, didn't realize what was vulnerable until it's vulnerable. Yeah. And, you know, we would we would look at vulnerability of our community, like I said, kind of segmented, like, oh, OK, in the wintertime, East Bay tends to have issues here. And in the summertime, the coastline has issues because of sea re- level rise. Um, right now, what this storm has done it leveled the playing field for everybody. We're all vulnerable. What um what today what what next? What what's on what's on your list of things to do <laughs> this week? Uh, it must be it must be full, <laughs> but uh, but it, you must have so much on your plate. But what's on what's what's top of mind for you? Just uh, you, you know what it just, we just have to keep going. Um, every single day, you know, getting those synopsis and updates from our ECC team on what what's happening on the ground. What, who needs our attention and, and, and what can we do to help them? A lot of my work right now is, is working with the other levels of government to figure out what kind of supports are here for my, are going to be coming here for my community. Um, it, it, it's a lot of advocacy. It's a lot of on the ground work. Um, it's, it's just going one step at a time. Yeah. Well, you, you must know that the country's watching and hoping and, and you know, and, and wishing everyone in Cape Breton the best and that, that, that there is a recovery here. So I hope there's some comfort in that, uh, that so many people have, have turned their eyes to you to and hope to, to help, obviously. It, it, it is so lasting on my heart and soul and the, and, and the feelings and sentiments of everybody here in my community. I know it. Um, the outreach of kindness and thoughtfulness and support it, it, it's immeasurable. It's so beautiful. And um, I just hope people know how grateful we are. We're so thankful. We're so lucky. And um, thank you. Thank you for being so kind. Well, Mayor McDougall, uh, good luck. Uh, I hope you get some rest. I hope you get to t- spend some time with your family too. I know they're important. Um, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Absolutely. Take good care. <laughs> 
I found these numbers today. They're a little bit out of date. I think this number has gone up and we're going to hear about that. But prior to 2009, insured losses from catastrophic severe weather in this country averaged $400 million per year. Since then, the annual average has reached $1.4 billion. I think it's up around 2 now. So we're seeing huge numbers of storms, or at least much more severe storms, and huge numbers of losses, big money losses. Initial estimates for the insured losses caused by Fiona alone is already between $300 million to $700 million uh, for the industry, according to a report on Tuesday. Now, today, the Infrastructure Minister, Dominic LeBlanc, addressed this. He says, as climate change makes floods, fires, and massive storms more frequent, governments are looking at the best way to shore up Canada's defences and recovery programs. The Federal Provincial Disaster Assistance Program covers public losses and some uninsurable private losses when a natural disaster strikes. LeBlanc says the scale of the problem now means program and private insurance needs to be reviewed. It's obvious that this arrangement needs to be modernized in the sense that the losses, the scale of losses, the type of damage including to personal property that, as your colleague said, in some cases are not insurable or easily insurable. Uh, We need as governments to find the right way to protect Canadians. Many homeowner insurance policies don't actually cover something like storm surge, which cause such massive damage to coastal properties such as in Porto Basque as Hurricane Fiona slammed into the provinces on Saturday. Joining me now with more on this is Amanda Dean. She's the Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me on. Well, you're in Halifax, so the impact of Fiona is right in your backyard, I gather. What's it been like? I mean, both personally and professionally, I guess, uh, from uh, from a personal point of view and from an insurance point of view. It is right in my own backyard. Certainly lots of uh, tree branches and um, trees cut up on the side of uh, the road. Every time there is a, certainly a hurricane that blows through our region, we um, we have to think about the things that we haven't thought about since the last one. So when it comes to hurricanes and the impact that they have on, uh, on residents, there's a couple of things to think about in terms of a home insurance policy. Anything to do with wind, uh, damage caused by wind, so a tree falling over due to the, uh, the force of wind uh, or debris flying through the air causing damage to a home. That is covered under a typical home insurance policy. We also see with the heavy amounts of rain that follow, uh, water damage caused by um, rain coming in those gaping holes that trees may have caused in our home, typically covered. Uh, sewer backups, um, because the sewer systems and wastewater systems are overwhelmed with the rain that comes in such a short period of time, typically covered if you have a sewer backup endorsement. Um, clear water from rivers overflowing their banks, again, from the volume of rain, uh, typically covered as well. But when we get into a storm surge, which certainly in advance of Fiona, we all heard um, the the warnings about um, the risk of storm surge and uh, what that could potentially do. That is something that has uh, typically not been uh, insured within Canada. Now, mind you, rivers overflowing their banks and coming into your home has only been insured since about uh, 2015 in Canada. There's been uh, those types of products that you can purchase to add on to your insurance policy. 
So you're adapting as the essentially you're adapting as these storms become more intense. Is that uh, and 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 the kind of destruction we're seeing starts to change? Absolutely, insurers are adapting because they're hearing from their policyholders, uh, and they're certainly hearing from policyholders following Fiona that um, storm surge is something that we're going to likely see more and more into the future. And we say that because of the more broader conversation around climate change. Mm-hmm. Now, with that conversation, uh, we know that climate change is leading to rising sea levels uh, and erosion happening at uh, greater speeds. And the risk modeling required for insurers to accurately price these types of, of products and this, this type of flood uh, coverage, if you will, is nearly impossible. So without that all-important risk modeling, um, the risk is deemed too high or would be too expensive. Now, with all of that said, there's been an awful lot of research done and an awful lot of conversation that's been happening uh, with respect to private-public partnerships um, with with government and what a flood program could look like in Canada that would include all all types of uh, high-risk um, flood, such as uh, storm surge. So, and that's important because those high-risk um, homeowners in high-risk areas currently are restricted in terms of what they can purchase in the private insurance market. So this public-private partnership that's being discussed is incredibly important because it will it will provide uh, a product available for those in extremely high-risk areas uh, to purchase. But that is working towards the future. Right now with Fiona, um, there is not much on the market uh, in order to cover storm surge. Just generally, I know it's early days, but have you even started to figure out what the insurance cost of this storm is going to be? We have not yet. So it will be weeks before we have a good sense of what this storm will cost. Now, there is impact in all four Atlantic provinces, and uh, some impact uh, was was also faced in Quebec as well. Mm. So we will have a better idea within a couple of weeks, um, and also... Insurers are just starting to get those claims calls in uh, as of yesterday. So this is not abnormal in this type of an event. Uh, when people experience damage to the properties, they, number one, are looking after the safety of themselves and their family. Uh, sometimes they're displaced, as we're seeing with the storm throughout the entire region. And um, they're also worried about uh, what happens next. So when people are able Uh, to wrap their heads around those next steps. That's typically when insurers are called and everyone within the insurance industry at the moment is standing at the ready. We are ready for those calls to come in, ready to start the claims process. And once insurers have a good sense of how many claims they have in any one given area, uh, then they will know if they need to bring in adjusters uh, from other provinces and deploy those resources accordingly. I remember seeing stats about Lytton being the most expensive natural disaster in Canadian history. I can't imagine this one will not be higher than that. It feels just by looking at it that it's going to be high compared to even Juan and some of the ones of the past where you are. Yes, it, it could very well be. Uh, and again, with such extensive damage in PEI uh, from Pictou County north northward in uh, in Nova Scotia, and then of course uh, in Port of Basque, Newfoundland, we've all seen 
those startling images, that startling video, uh, you can't help but being impacted when you see those images. And everyone in the insurance industry is human uh, and mm-hmm. is pa- impacted by those images and wants to help as best as they can. Uh, so everyone is ready for those calls to come in. I know as you sort this all out, will there will there be an impact on premiums generally across the country? I mean, I think think what we're seeing here is a change in weather patterns. That's certainly a concern for insurers. It's certainly a concern for homeowners. But will this impact people broadly beyond Atlantic Canada? Typically, uh, one event doesn't impact too much. But what we are seeing is a series of events that are cropping up right across the country and certainly right across Atlantic Canada. We typically have a series of smaller events. This is certainly going to be on the larger side of events uh, that Atlantic Canadians face uh, in terms of uh, insurance-related costs. So uh, as claims drive premiums, stands to reason that that premiums uh, will increase as these types of events come with more frequency and severity. But it's also important to note, too, that um, so 2001 to 2010, the average annual payout uh, nationally for severe weather events was was uh, over six hundred thousand dollars in Canada. Now we're averaging two point two billion dollars a year uh, for those same types of losses. So that's a pretty big jump. Uh, it's also indicative to the changing climate and the changing severe weather patterns that we're seeing. Amanda Dean, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you reaching out. Well, the issue of single-use items for food and drink uh, seems like one of the simplest ways to try and solve the issue of, of waste, really. We, know we waste an awful lot of uh, stuff just by using them once. Uh, we've done a pretty good job with cutlery and things like that in the past little while, plastic cutlery in particular. Uh, but what about those cups we use all the time? Takeaway packaging. I mean, during the pandemic, obviously, there was such a surge in use of those things because we were ordering in a lot more. We weren't eating out as much. Um, so we were ordering in more and all of it had to be packaged. You remember getting those big bags full of stuff all packaged up. Well, we're moving into a different period now and attention to the viability of single-use items is, of course, back in the spotlight. There are a number of companies that are looking to fill need and demand for something different. Sharewares, as the name may suggest, is in Vancouver. They've established a borrowing system for reusable cups, amongst other things, but reusable cups is one of the more fascinating ones. It's already partnering with companies such as Tim Hortons. And like so many ideas and ventures these days, it was born through necessity and then creativity because of the circumstances the founder and CEO found himself in in the early days of the pandemic. And Cody Irwin, who is the founder and CEO of Sharewares, joins me now. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. So this was an interesting idea. Like so many good ideas, I gather it's something that happened during those that sort of time of the pandemic, those early days of the pandemic, when suddenly you had to come up with creative ways to continue to do business. Oh, yeah. We had a completely different business uh, before the pandemic. Our, our pre-pandemic business was called Natural Source. We were doing corporate food service and, and logistics, uh, and we were kind of in the process of uh, transitioning the industry over into uh, zero waste. Right. And the pandemic struck, all offices closed, and we dropped 98% overnight. So 98? 98. 98. Wow. It's actually yeah. 98.2. 
um it was yeah it was comical it was just like being at the airport and uh having a snowstorm run through and it's yep. just like flight canceled 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 like we're just like sitting here just crossing it off a board just like like everything's digitized but we're like this is got like we just, let's just board this and then just cross 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 and it was it was it was actually hilarious yeah and, and better, but hilarious better, better to laugh than to cry i'm sure but <laughs> oh yeah it was yeah it was and like because it was happening it was just happening to everybody it wasn't just like a a siloed event that was just like just pounding down on us or whatnot so um we could commiserate with everybody and you know it was yeah it was a time so the direction you took is really interesting because obviously there's a demand for it out there uh so tell me about sharewares so Sharewares is a, um, I guess, a tech-enabled borrowing platform that's that's citywide. So um, we supply, collect, track, and wash reusable packaging for um, for businesses in Vancouver to uh, just kind of eliminate their their need for for single-use items. Say, like a cup of coffee. Uh, instead of having a single-use cup, you could have a reusable cup um, that you you not rent but you you borrow and you pay a deposit and then when you return that you get that deposit back and, and we've we've done like a digital innovation on like kind of the bottle deposit program so that when we get when you get it back we can issue you your refund through like an email money transfer or we have charity partners that uh that you can you can donate to instead um but we also actually have the a non-tech version so just like the bottle deposit program how you return bottles to a depot um, you could do that also with our products. So there's actually no technology that's needed in the entire value chain from distribution to retailer to customer um, to like the reverse logistics. As long as it comes back, then we can uh, refund the, um, uh, the the customer. So you have both the digital and an analog version of this, uh, which is always good. Tell me, just, yeah. just so listeners understand specifically how it would work. Like, let's take, for example, a coffee shop and a cup. How How does that happen? Right. Uh, so, so Tim Hortons is a, is a partner of ours. Uh, we have our technology on their cups and, and we're their washing partner. So there's 10 locations downtown Vancouver. You go into your Tim Hortons, you ask to borrow a reusable cup, uh, you pay for your coffee, you double-double, and then you also pay a fully refundable uh, deposit on that cup. And then when you're done that, uh, done that cup of coffee, uh, wherever you are in the city, you can scan the QR code that's, that's on that cup. It's unique to each cup. And that shows you all the the, the return locations uh, or, or return options because we do have like home pickup and things like that um, that you can that you can uh, or how you can return your cup. And then uh, when we re- return when we receive that cup, then we can issue you your refund uh, through that email money transfer or donation or cash so- if you bring it right back to us. So for those of us who spent a lifetime sort of getting cardboard cups and, you know, using them and tossing them, where, where does, where does the advantage lie here? Do you think other than, other than environmentally, obviously. Oh, the advantage. Uh, yeah, it is the environmental side of things. Like that's the the main focus on it. There's like 263 million cups, uh, single use cups that go to landfill or incinerator uh, every year in, um, in Metro Vancouver. Uh, and and it's a yeah it's a huge load and like the paper part of it too if it's going into a landfill that's organic matter that's not just re- releasing you know uh, carbon is really or it is releasing carbon in the sense of methane and methane's way worse than than carbon dioxide so you want to keep all the organic matter out of out of the landfill and it's also just the the circular economy is the way that we need to go forward like extracting resources 
creating something, using it for 13 minutes, which is the average lifespan of a cup of coffee uh, or a cup from, for coffee, and then disposing of it, destroying it, like kind of devaluing it. Um, it's just not sustainable into the future. And so bringing in the circular economy, which is you know what a, a reuse platform does, uh, 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 allows for that value to transfer back into the economy. Uh, It also shortens supply chains. It creates more resilient economies, uh, inclusive economies. You have more employment locally. Um, So you're not just buying stuff from overseas. You can actually have, you know, the the collection, uh, sorting, washing, packing, everything like that within your own, um, your own community. And then you're not reliant on, on the outside world, if you will, uh, and all the carbon that's, uh, attached to that. So these reusable cups, are they're, they're travel cups. Are they travel cups? You can carry them around uh, comfortably? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're just a more robust, um, like single, it's like a, uh, it's a halfway between like your travel mug. That's like got like the closing lid and, you know, is sealed up and you can throw it in your backpack. It's halfway between that and a single use cup. So it's still, you know, it still has a lid. It's still a cup. Um, but it's, you know, it can, it can handle, uh, you know, more uses than like a single use cup. Um, but it's not like designed to go in your backpack. So you keep it forever. The, right. the whole point point of the system is to get them back and then keep them circulating in the economy and not, uh, uh, and not, not having people keep them forever. Cause that means you have to build, you have to, you know, you have to, um, manufacture more cups to inject into the community. Um, if people are just keeping these on hand all the time and then returning them later. So there's a, a bigger kind of effect if people aren't actually returning them. Yeah. How has it been so far? I mean, how is, how is it, uh, how are people reacting to it and, and, and how has it been in terms of people sort of following the system the way you hope they would? Uh, well, it's, it's a learning curve. Like we, I, I've never built a technology company until, until now. So um, going through that whole startup phase of, of that was a, a learning curve for us on uh, UX and UI and just how the whole system flows and how to tell the story. And, and so at the beginning, it was a, a you know, a little bit um, clunky. And so over time, we've, we've just made it uh, more and more or flow more and more uh, easily uh, for the consumer. So now it's just like super quick, just a couple scans. You know, all we need is your email address and you're, and you're, you're done because we need to send you an email money transfer. So we need that email address. Um, and so like the, the uptake, uh, I mean, people love it. They think that the idea is great. Like we're partnering now with like the city of Vancouver for a pilot with, uh, with six of their locations and, uh, and, and looking to grow that out. I mean, it's a mandate of theirs to go zero waste by 2030. So, I mean, it's good for them to get on board. We've like partnered with Skip the Dishes and, you know, um, well, a lot of businesses in town, like Ernest Ice Cream is a local favorite. And so we're actually doing washing for them. So like the reuse culture is really growing. Um, Nada, which is like the OG of zero waste grocery in Vancouver, they're subleasing space from us now. So we're kind of like all is like a nice little unit. So it's growing. It's definitely growing. And right now it's kind of like the greens, the people that really feel it and want it. Um but we're yeah we're we're looking to engage the the greater community because it's going to take you know the 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 people to want it and be aware of it and to kind of see it and feel it in their day-to-day lives to actually want yeah. change and to drive change and understand how it works too right because people are often reluctant to to sort of be you know when you take possession of something even even a bottle i mean although people are are used to it when it comes to returnable bottles so it's it's a but people often just throw those away right so or not throw them away but but don't bring them back. So I guess you're trying to foster sort of a uh, a whole culture of this as well as as just being able to figure out how to do it conveniently, which is scan the cup. And so it sounds like it's pretty straightforward once you've done it once. 
Yeah. And, and as we build out that network of return options, we see like a, a, a return bin or a collection bin in anywhere that there's like a, a waste stream or waste collection, because this really could be just ubiquitous in the in, in our culture that, you know, you buy a cup at a, a Starbucks and, and then, you know, on the street, there's a collection bin that you can you can return that to. We actually do have uh, public collection bins in partnership with Encorp uh, downtown. So there's seven of them now and, and growing. They're like street side bins where they're collecting and bringing them back to us. And then and then we wash. So like in your office space, we have office collection in you know all of our retailers. They all have uh, collection bins. And so pretty much anywhere where there's a garbage or recycling bin, there could be an, a, a collection bin. And that actually could replace the need for any waste bin or recycling bin or anything like that. And then there's just purely these these collection bins. So it's way easier than the bottle bottle deposit because with that, you manually have to take those to a depot and, and drop right. that off. Um, and people are just like reluctant to do that. As you say, like, they're just like, well, I'm not going to do that. It's too, too much work. So they just put it in their recycling. And then the, the prevalent binner economy here um, sees that as an employment opportunity or income opportunity. And they, you know, they take care of that uh, right. too. So uh, they're, they're actually like the, the line of last defense and, and they can produce a, an income out of it. And we see them as a, a great resource for, uh, for the circular economy. Are you getting a lot of these cups back? I mean, are you getting most of them back at this point? Uh, yeah, I guess at the beginning we did a big, um, a big push to, to get, you know, uh, retailers on board and everything like that. We're, I, I'm a nice guy. I just want to, I just want to give everything away for free if I could. Everybody's like, no, you have to make money. And I'm like, well, just let's just get it out there. So I, I, we had like tons and tons of cups. And so we were giving them away for free at coffee shops just so people could like fill them up themselves. Um, and then we're giving them to retailers and stuff like that. Uh, and we weren't tracking the individual cups that went out for that. Uh, part of our whole system is we can track everything now. Uh, but at that time, um, we couldn't, so they're kind of like out in the community uh, a bunch. So, uh, but yeah, they're like generally the people that are using it are are, are being good and, and bringing them back. I guess you always have to go slow with these things and not not expand too quickly. But what are what are your what are your dreams for all this? All the dreams, the dreams. Well, uh, <laughs> um, well, I, I see that like this this. Uh, platform that we built could be replicated in, in like, anywhere around the world, uh, even at small scale. Um, so even with like, you know, if people didn't have cell phones or didn't want to use cell phones or didn't have bank accounts or anything like that, they could still use the bottle deposit model to, to make it run and have a, a small scale washing facility. Uh, or just a community that's running it themselves that doesn't have a centralized washing, washing facility, but has a champion of that community that uh, has a restaurant or a cafe that has a washing s- system so that if you're smaller and you're not going to have as much throughput that, you know, the uh, the decentralized model could 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 take the load so you don't have to have like your own centralized washing facility like we have in Vancouver. So yeah, I, and I can see it growing up to like a big thing where, you know, this is the new utility for, for circular cities where, you know, Toronto has just like a giant city block or blocks that are just a giant processing. I mean, Vancouver could have that too. Um, processing millions of units a day. Because I mean, it doesn't just have to extend to like coffee cups and takeout containers and grocery containers. This could be like anything that has value. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to like get anything really back that you're, you're buying. Anything could have be coated with something and have a deposit on it and then, you know, be brought back for, for to get that deposit back. Well, Cody Irwin, thank you so much for uh, for explaining what uh, what Sharewares does. That's great. Oh well, no, thank you so much for for reaching out. <laughs>
Chair Poliev in, in the House of Commons again today. Cost of living issues, front and centre. Why? Because it's working for him. Uh, ever since he's become leader of the Conservative Party, um, they're up, apparently. They're in the ascendance. A new poll from Angus Reid today shows they have a gap not seen since 2019. Uh, the Conservatives at 37%, the Liberals at 30%, the NDP at 20%. Part of Polyev's message is resonating with younger voters struggling to make ends meet. And joining me now with more on that is Shachi Curl. She's president of the Angus Reid Institute. Thanks for your time. Hi, Ben. So what have you found? It looks like uh, quite the bump, so to speak. Well, it certainly represents the first time in uh, at least three years that we've seen uh, the Conservatives uh, creating and opening up some space with a lead over the Liberals. So not since 2019, the summer of the SNC-Lavalin scandal, have we seen really the, the Liberals um, behind by, by more than a handful of points. And these two parties have, in essence, been locked in a statistical tie over the last three years. And, you know, it's football season, Ben. Uh, federal politics has been defined really since 2018, 2019 as a game of inches, particularly in the last two federal elections, where the the, the amount of daylight uh, between the two parties in terms of popular vote was sliver thin. Of course, it broke differently in the House of Commons, which is why you saw more Liberals winning seats. But in terms of uh, vote intention, it's been so, so tight. So this really opens up a bit of breathing room for the Conservatives. So where is that support coming from suddenly? Um, you're seeing it come in a couple of different places. There's no doubt that uh, not only is the conservative base re-energized, reinvigorated, excited by uh, the, the victory of Pierre Poiliev, but as we have been saying over the course of the last several months, ever since he threw his hat in the ring, that the path to victory for him was by really focusing on those right of center bona fides. And so what's happening is former PPC voters like the right of right who, who drifted off to Maxime Bernier are now seeing something in Pierre Poiliev that they really like, and they are they're coming to the conservatives or in some cases coming back to the conservatives. And, you know, it's 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 not surprising, perhaps, given that Pierre Poiliev has has not only been very clear about where he sits on the political spectrum, but I think back to the Freedom Convoy, his his characterization of some of those participants as heroes, for example, that was really jam in the sandwich for a lot of people who were feeling like the Conservative Party under Aaron O'Toole was was not a party they felt at home with. What are we seeing in terms of Ben? Because we talked a lot this week about uh, the first uh, showdown, or last week rather, the first showdown in uh, the House of Commons between the new uh, leader of the opposition and the Prime Minister. What are we seeing in terms of approval for those two uh, men? Because I gather there's a bit of a gender gap going on. There's a huge gender gap. It's quite notable. And I think that that it it results in um, a situation where neither leader, as it stands today, has the the ability, has the base to reach across the political divide and really um, widen their their support network. So I'll just I'll, I'll tell you 
Back when Justin Trudeau was a fresh-faced prime minister, uh, 2015, 2016, 2017, he had the absolute loyalty and fealty of young voters. So 18 to 34-year-olds were solidly team Trudeau. And some of that had to do with like cannabis legislation, but it had to do with climate change and a lot of other things. Today, things are very, very different. And instead of seeing an age divide, uh, we're seeing that gender divide where men, particularly young men, which is a new phenomenon, and then men across the age uh, spectrum are really dialing into and finding something that they're that they like hearing from Pierre Poiliev. Women, on the other hand, are very much like hands up, not that guy. We don't like him. We don't hear what what we want to hear from him. And so the challenge for Justin Trudeau is that while he still has women over the age of 55 um, solidly in his corner, younger women are more likely to be drifting over to Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. Um, so it's not it's not a totally clean win for Justin Trudeau with women. Meantime, Pierre Poiliev does seem to be really galvanizing men. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, in a game of inches, every inch matters in this case. So that that would mean something. And I guess part of that, too, is when you look at what is really on voters' minds, at least according to your poll these days, we're seeing a big shift. And that could explain, to some extent, why Polyev's uh, messaging is getting through to people, especially younger people, in a way, perhaps, that uh, that previous leaders weren't able to connect with younger voters in Trudeau's earlier days. Right. It's one thing. And it's inflation. I can say it three times. It's inflation, inflation, inflation. So cost of living, when it hits younger people and lower income earners disproportionately, you know, for the first time in a generation, for the first time in the adult lives of millions of Canadians, and I think of our own generation, this is, you know, interest rates are rising. Stuff is expensive. You can't buy what you want, when you want, whenever you want on credit, the notion of saving up or putting off big purchases, things that our parents grew up with. Um, these are these are kind of new concepts for a whole generation of younger Canadians. And so that cost of living issue is going to be the wicked problem that leaders will have to present themselves as, as able to deal with, as able to manage. And it's interesting because on the question of whether Poiliev or Trudeau uh, is, is seen to be or perceived to be better on managing inflation, at the moment, it's advantage Poiliev. About 39% say he's best to manage inflation. 31% say it's Trudeau who's best to manage inflation. The thing is right now, Ben, neither leader has a clear cut path to be able to to pick up um, basically voters who are outside their traditional base. So as politics has become more polarized, and frankly, as these two leaders have really embraced the politics of division and made a point over the last years of really speaking to their own base instead of speaking across the divide, you reap what you sow. So Poiliev is the champion of right of center voters in this country. Trudeau remains a champion or remains um, someone that, that is quite palatable to center left voters. Right now, we don't have uh, in the country, a, a leader who has shown themselves to be able to actually speak across that and speak further than their base. But let's see what they do now. Yeah, I look forward to the next one. Shachi Kroll, thank you so much. 
All right. Thank you. Now, we've often talked on this show about the incredible toll that the opioid crisis has had uh, on many people, and in particular, overdose deaths on those who've been left behind. We spoke to a medicine hat mom last month who has now devoted herself to trying to provide the kinds of supports in her community that she feels may have helped save her son's life. We met an Edmonton mom who patrols the streets nightly in her town, knowing that her son is still out there and still using. The response to the loss of a child can take many, many forms. And in the case of author Tara McGuire, who lost her son to an overdose at age 21 in 2015, it is in the form of a book called Holden After and Before. It is described as a love letter to a young life lost and the journey both before and after. And Tara McGuire joins me now from Vancouver. Thank you so much for your time. Ben, how are you? I'm well, and thanks thanks for taking the time to speak with us tonight. It's it's um it's such a deeply I mean such clearly such a deeply personal book that you've written. Um, what was your how did you decide that a book was the right way to try to understand and then share this story? I guess it's because I am a writer, and um, in times of all kinds of different stresses in my life, I've always turned to writing. So it just seemed like the way to go. I, I didn't really intend to write a book when I first started writing. You know, I was journaling and writing some poems and paragraphs, and it just sort of spiraled from there. I started writing probably five or six years ago, and today is book launch day. Well, congratulations on the book launch. And it's it must be, how does it feel to have completed something that, that was not just a journey, but not, not just about writing something, but really about a whole, I would imagine a whole process of just trying to understand and comprehend what had happened and, and also learn more about, uh, about your son. Yeah, it feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah. it, feels, it feels like a lot. Um, you know, I've gained an incredible education along the way in terms of my knowledge it, it, as in a, in, about writing as a whole. And then in terms of what I've learned about my son, it's just, a continuing evolution of our relationship is how I like to look at it. Um, I've I've learned a lot. I've talked to a lot of his friends, and I've done a lot of research. And um, I, I'm hoping that the book is something that people will read, whether they know someone who's struggling with substance use disorder or whether they're people who just like to read. I, I hope they find it to be a well-written book. I understand that you began to write it using his voice or from his point of view. But decided to change it to to make it broader. Um, what what made what made you decide to to change directions a little bit? Yeah, well, I I guess I decided I wanted to write a book, but I didn't really know how to do that. And I think when you're facing something that's really enormous, the best thing to do is to just get started. And so that was my first thought was just to write about Holden's life from his point of view. And I thought it would be a fiction novel. And then I realized through a lot of the workshops and things I was doing that I had a lot to say as well, and that the two stories could exist together. You went out and spoke to lots of people that he knew, knew well or didn't know that well, but people, you got a lot of perspectives about someone who you knew as a son. And I gather you learned some pretty amazing things about things you suspected, but you know, you only know it when you start to hear from other people. Yeah, well, I always, you know, every mother, I think, loves their children. And I love Holden. And I always thought he was a pretty cool guy. But when I started doing more in-depth research, 
um, and talking to his friends and coworkers and girlfriends and just people that he had done graffiti art with. Everybody talked so fondly about Holden and how interesting he was, how loyal and kind he was. And they told me stories about ways that Holden had been there for them when they really needed a friend. And um, I also have his phone, so I was able to read his private messages. And, you know, it's one thing how we present ourselves publicly on social media or whatever, but when you read someone's private messages, I think you learn truly what's on their mind. And he was just so kind to people. He was really funny in his messages, really super creative. And um, yeah, it was nice to see that even sort of behind those closed doors, he was still a really, a really fantastic person. Did you gain any understanding as well about just what he was going through? Um, I, I know you've, you you said the word addiction isn't the right word because that's not really what it was. You said it was a substance use disorder for him. Did you gain yeah. perspective on, on what happened? Well, I think it's not unusual for young people to be confused. I think I've spent most of my life being confused. Yeah. And um, maybe you can relate. I don't know. But I, I think I found out that Holden struggled with his mental health, as so many of us do. And I certainly have struggled, especially through COVID, with a lot of depression. Mm. Holden struggled with those same things. But as a young person, it's really hard to know what to do to cope with them. And um, so, yeah, I, I definitely found out that he was struggling with his mental health. I mean, he had as a teenager, sort of cyclically, nothing really consistent. Um, he was, you know, well-employed. He had lots of friends. He was certainly not um, destitute. He had a house to live in, but um, you never know what's going on with a person inside their mind and inside their heart. And I think he was really struggling. And I think a lot of people, especially young people now, are really struggling with their mental health and there just really aren't enough supports to help people with the resources they need. Yeah, and we should talk about that. Um, one of the things that interested me too is that he was artistic, right? So obviously he had outlets for for the things that sort of places to go when he must have been feeling down. Oh yeah, Holden was a tremendous artist. He was primarily a graffiti artist. Or, um, he would do graffiti all over town, but he also was extremely musical. He could play music by ear even as a young kid. So he was always playing music. And um, he had definitely creative outlets, but, you know, the world is kind of a tough place now. And, and I think that mental illness is one of those things where it's difficult to ask for help. There's a lot of sort of ego associated with it in the last five years or so, but it's, it's tough to ask for help when you don't even really know as a young person what's going on. You just know you don't feel good or you know you know something's off and you witness other people's lives seem to be much easier and much happier and yours isn't but you don't quite know what to do about it you know every time i hear the name holden i always think of holden caulfield of course right you know, from, the, <laughs> sure. from the catcher in the rye and uh, yeah. he doesn't sound like that he didn't sound he didn't sound like someone who was that sort of he, there was something he sounded like a different kind of holden how's that yeah, he's a different kind of Holden, all right. But I think they did have some similarities. You know, they're both very clever, both very sort of literary. And um, Holden wasn't named after the J.D. Salinger character. He was named mm -hmm. after his grandma. That was her maiden name. But, um, you know, I read The Catcher in the Rye a few times. I'm, I'm sure everybody's read it. 
And there there were some similarities um, with the two characters, but I like to think of my Holden as a little bit lighter. Yes, a little bit more likable, I think, was was the uh, was probably the. I so don't know. You, the, I like Holden Caulfield. <laughs> I did too. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Yes, I suppose I did. It goes back a while now. Um, yeah. So, so when you when you sat with the book and it was done, you, you what, what did you? How is it? You must have read through it before. What was it like to give it one last read before it sort of left and then went out into the into the public as it now has? Yeah, well, of course, I've read it many times. I've rewritten it many times. And actually, one of the most profound experiences was when I narrated the audiobook for Penguin Random House, and I got a chance to read the whole book out loud in a studio kind of like the one you're sitting in right now. And uh, it gave me a chance to almost listen to it with different ears in a way, because, you know, when you're writing something, it sounds different. And I just realized how much I'd been through over the years and how much I'd learned and um, how much empathy I have for for Holden and for other people who are struggling perhaps with mental illness and substance use disorder. I mean, Holden's illness was sort of cyclical. There was a lot of time when he was great and he enjoyed his life and he had lots of friends and he felt good. And then there were times when he wasn't. And the same kind of thing happens to me and maybe it happens with some of your listeners. And, and that became really apparent to me when I did read the book all the way through. The audiobook is out today too. It's 12 and a half hours of me talking. And it's, um, that was quite an experience to, to kind of think about other people listening to it in that way. Um, Tara, what would you like now that it's there, now that it's out there, of course, now everyone gets to read it as well. And I imagine that's always daunting. But what would you like people to, people to take away from it? Because it's, I mean, it's gotten great reviews already. Um, it must, you know, it's a very personal book, right? But it, but I, I imagine you would like readers to get something of, for themselves out of it too. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I think what I would like is for people to appreciate it as a well-written book. I'd like uh, people to understand that when they think about about people who've died from opioid overdose, every single person has a very complex life and people who love them and a a history and their own reasons for making the decisions that they have. And I think, you know, there's, there's been uh, this big discussion about ending the stigma, but what does that mean? You, You know, how can we do it? And I think it's important to understand that if you have an idea of a person who's died of an opioid overdose as kind of some shady dude on the downtown east side yeah that happens but that's not the whole picture there are people in all aspects of our society clearly um, that struggle with substance use disorder and so maybe those images that we have aren't completely accurate and just to maybe approach people that are struggling with their mental health with a little more compassion and some eye contact and some questions rather than judgments that's something you must have learned too, as you went through this whole process of researching, and then the way you just—I mean—as you walk through day-to-day life, whether it be Vancouver or I'm in Victoria, obviously, I mean, addiction and, and, and substance use, I should say, is around you all the time, and it—and it, it, I think it's—we're learning. I hope how to how yeah. to better better deal with it as as people, you know, not just society. I I hope we are, Ben. Like I was super judgy, you know, for a long time, and I I still am. I struggle with it, but I try to see every human being as someone who's just doing their best to live their life and to try and be 
the person that they want to be. And, and it's not for us to say how others choose to live their lives. But um, the damage that's being done with the opioid crisis is just catastrophic. Over 30,000 people have died. And um, there's no, it's not slowing down. It's getting worse. And so I think that what we can look at is maybe some different approaches. What we're doing obviously isn't working. You know, maybe we can look at some different ways of helping people address mental health concerns and substance use disorder as more of a medical issue than a crime and just try and, you know, when people present with the desire to change, hopefully we can have some treatments available for them at that time. It's just, it's just so difficult to access treatment and the care that's necessary. It's so often the story, and I gather it was the same for your son, that they, they were at a point where that when when they passed away, that they were actually kind of coming out, that they were recovering at that point, or at least it seemed that way. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's something that I've heard from quite a few moms or parents. Yeah, you know, I've realized that addiction and, and substance use disorders is not a linear path. Like any mm-hmm. other disease, you know, my father-in-law struggled he had cancer and he would go into remission and then he would, it would come raging back and, and that kind of thing. And and that's very similar to what substance use disorders are like. You know, there are different impacts and different factors that affect our responses as human beings. And I think we have to just kind of be in it for the long haul and not think that there's a magic ticket that, oh, this person is well now, you know, it can be a lifelong thing. People talk about being in recovery forever. And I think that's really true. And um, I think we just need to slow down a little bit and maybe just be a little kinder and hopefully supply more resources where they are needed. Because when I think about all the, you know, the pain that our family has suffered and the wider community and everyone's family members, it's just, it's a lot of people who are really suffering and it doesn't need to be that way. One of the things that I found um, so poignant about what you said is that when you speak to different parents who've lost kids, um, it, it feels like everything they do is about a continuation of the relationship, whether they're out, you know, trying to raise money for for a treatment center in their community or anything that they think could have helped. And it was interesting that you referred to this as a continuation of the relationship. And I, it's uh, it must have felt that way, which is probably um, a great thing, I would imagine, at least in, in given the circumstances. It's a great thing, and it's kind of a weird thing. Like Holden's sister, Lila, is 19, and pretty soon she'll be older than he ever got to be. You know, and so, yeah, it's a continuation, but in a way it's just sort of like holding a candle, you know, for those people. They're, they don't get to live anymore, but of course they're, they're front and center in our minds and in our memories, and we won't forget them, and we won't get over it. You know, we'll just continue to exist in a way that honors them, hopefully, and I didn't want to just not do anything about it. You know, like I didn't want Holden's stuff to be for nothing. And it's been really painful to write this book. Uh, it's really painful to think about what happened with Holden and how maybe things could have been different. And I think about all the families that continue to wrestle. And by the way, grief happens, you know, before people die. It happens when you have a, a family member and they're out and you don't know what they're doing and you're worried about them. That's grief, you know, and and there's so many of us struggling, and I just want people to know that, um, you know, they're seen and they're understood, and those feelings are, are valid, and 
Um, I don't know. I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah, you said anything but silence. I think that was the way you put it. Anything, anything but silence, which seemed like the seemed like the right way of, of putting. It. Where where can people find find your book, Tara? It's out. It's out today. I know. It's out today. It's available everywhere. I encourage people to support independent bookstores because you know business is rough out there. And um, the if audiobook is more your style, it's on all the audiobook platforms. It's in most libraries now too. Or you can order it directly from the publisher, which is Arsenal Pulp Press. Tara McGuire, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining me tonight and, and sharing your story and sharing the story of the book. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate you having me on.